We essentially have taken the last 50 years of kind of like email client history and abstracted it all away for folks that are building email integrations. So we essentially give developers what they want, a modern REST API that allows you to connect to any email mailbox that's out there. The reason this is really powerful is because the email ecosystem is really complex. There are like millions of different email servers deployed around the world and hundreds and thousands of different client implementations. Hello, and welcome to Ollicast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Marion Ventures. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at Ollicast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. An email startup in this decade might seem uh, surprising, even a little bit old-fashioned. What opportunities did you find that everyone else seems to have missed? So a lot of times I have to end up explaining the email ecosystem to people. Oh boy, because... this is going to be a five-hour-long <laughs> podcast. I'll, I'll keep it short. The TLDR of this is that everybody else's email startups fall into basically two different categories. One is, uh, I'm building a new sort of email client that has XYZ feature that's better than everything else that's out there. And funny story, we actually you did, this, startup. did this for a little while back in the early days, and... These startups tend to be pretty short-lived because they have to either get bought or they go out of business because all of the like major tech giants out there have basically uh, set a baseline cost of $0 for an email client mm-hmm. by subsidizing them with their other businesses. So like Microsoft has an email client, Google has an email client, and like if you're building uh, an email client as a business, you have to like both be like better in terms of like features in that, but also like get over this like psychological hurdle of like be freer. Yeah, be freer, which uh, is basically impossible uh, as a way to make money. So I don't recommend doing that. But the other kind of category of other email businesses out there that's has been started in the past decade is essentially what's called like transactional email sending services. Mm -hmm. So I consider these to be sort of like the cousin of Nihilus in that they're APIs and they have to do with email, but they have a specific use case that they're useful for in that like they're only sending and when you're sending uh, you're not authenticating as like a specific person so these apis are used for sending like mass emails of like 100,000 people for marketing campaigns yep. and things like that so there's a specific set of use cases which these APIs are really useful for, and those are things that Nihilus is not good at. Mm. So we're essentially complementary to these other email services. But the opportunity that no one else had taken advantage of is really seeing the value in the data of email and not just marketing to people based on that data. Yeah, exactly. But like, you know, email's been around for like 50 years at this point and like in the beginning it was just people like sending messages to them to each other like, you know, literally like electronic mail. It's like I could send you a letter or I could, you know, type in the words and then send it through the internet and then you'll get it and it'll be like a letter. But over the past decades, people have started using email for all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. And now it's essentially like the lingua franca of business. Yeah. Yep. Like yeah. people are sending documents, they're like signing contracts, they're setting up meetings. They're sending highly structured data in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. And yet like the actual data storage that people use for email is like literally just like a pile of documents. It's fifty years old. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a giant file cabinet that's like in chronological order of like it, what. It wouldn't surprise me if it were a literal file cabinet with one really overworked clerk just running. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Indexes, file catalogs, all this stuff. Well, this seems like a really great chance to introduce yourself. Yeah, for sure. So, hi everybody. My name is Christine Spang, and I am the founder and CTO of Nihilus. We are a technology startup based in San Francisco and New York, and been around for over five years at this point. Always blows my mind whenever I say that because I definitely didn't expect uh, it to work out this well. I think when I might have cut company. you off a little bit when you're talking about the value prop. So please continue. Mm-hmm. If so, mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry. Anyway, the company is like it's like 45 people at this point, which always blows my mind. But I guess to kind of circle back and yeah. talk a little bit about uh, what we do. So we essentially have taken the last 50 years of kind of like email client history and abstracted it all away for folks that are building uh, email integrations. So we essentially give developers what they want, a modern REST API that allows you to connect to any email mailbox that's out there. And you know, essentially, like an end user can connect their mailbox to some developer's application, and then the developer gets a token, and then they can you know, do all of the CRUD operations on a mailbox. And the reason this is really powerful is because the email ecosystem is really complex. There are like millions of different email servers deployed around the world, and there's a few different kind of major families of like types of email servers and like hundreds and thousands of different client implementations. So because email was like originally like created as this kind of open standard and it allowed for there to be this innovation in terms of like what the email servers who were built by, who's building the mail clients, and just like the complexity that built up over that time has made it very hard to to, to build really, once you that, give people a, a really flexible, open-ended thing that they can. It's really hard to to rein that in. It's really hard to dial it back to a more structured and less open-ended way. And at the same time, email has been for me personally and for everyone I think who's used it for the last 20, 25 years, like the base of yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I imagine that sticking an API in there is going to like present you with some really significant performance challenges. People are very intolerant of slow delivery. How do you make your API go really, really fast? So there was like a really fundamental decision that we made early on when building Nihilus, which Actually, it was really scary at the time, but looking back, it, it was really fundamental, and I, I think it worked out for the best. And that decision was essentially to, like, we essentially had two different options for how do you build this thing. One is, like, we could be, like, a proxy layer where uh, essentially someone makes a request to our API, and we, like, translate that into, like, the Google API way to, like, request the data or, like, the Microsoft API way to request that data. But we like threw this idea out really fast, specifically because of this like speed requirement yep. and also for reliability. So uh, essentially what we decided to do was basically like build an email client that lives in the cloud mm-hmm. and that is fronted by an API so that we are constantly like syncing and caching a copy of this data so that we can serve it really quickly. Mm-hmm. That means there's like a couple different kind of components of our service, which makes it more complicated than like like some random API that does something simpler in that like an API request for us is really boring. It's like literally just like hits a proxy, talks to our application server, loads some data from the database, returns it. But the interesting part there is that that data has to be up to date mm-hmm. with the backend provider. So our speed is essentially like it's not just like how fast I can serve a request, but it's like 
how fast are we getting that data into our system and making it available for end users. So what performance goals do you set around that? Were there any surprises? Yeah, so I don't think that there's like anything really weird in terms of like what kinds of things we're measuring. It's all kind of standard, like, uh, you know, success rate, latency. But we also have a bunch of custom instrumentation around this kind of like sync service that is keeping our data stores up to date. So, for example, we measure like the message ingest rate and like the delta in. So every message has like a timestamp from the server on it. And so we keep track of like the difference between the timestamp on the server and like when we commit it to our database uh, in order to generate metrics mm -hmm. because we want to like make that as small as possible. Yep. So that's a really interesting one. And like we don't have like kind of one master metric that like tells us that the system is working, that we've like brainstormed a few different ideas. Does anyone really? I'm I'm not a big yeah, believer just, in the master metric. <laughs> Most people have one, they are just all kind of crappy. Yeah, I've heard a lot said about like the like Amazon like orders. Or there, like or Pingdom. A lot of people will just set up a Pingdom check that runs once a minute from all around the world. And then they'll like literally at the end of the month, they're like, our uptime was 99.8%. Yeah. And you're like, oh, Jesus. It feels all kinds of participation trophy to me. Oh, God. So so much yes. Like sales There is something powerful in being able to condense it down to a thing that you can track, though. And often yeah. when, it's your, when it's your first stabs into this arena... Like, it's too depressing to do anything else. Like, you've got to get that low-hanging mm. fruit. you got to go, okay, now we're at 99.9. .9. Now let's start to look under the covers. So right. maybe it's the difference between testing and teaching to the test, like having yeah, a, a, a guideline is. versus it abs it abs optimizing to maximize that. It is. It's also like uh, when you start, like a lot of people, like at Parse, when I started there, they didn't have anything. Right. They had some health checks. Right. They, they had nothing. And, and when we set up a check and it was like, oh, my God, this end-to-end -end check is feeling how much? You know, mm. and then the temptation is to go, oh, the test is flaky and like roll it back out. But usually it's not. Usually it's your infrastructure that is way more flaky than you ever dreamed. And you just have to start paying down that debt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. For us, we've, we've tried to figure out like, can we just like measure like how many like objects are like being synced into our system yeah. over time? But Which is valuable, but it's not going to catch the like, problems before the object gets into easy. the sync thing and right. out of it, you know, and. It really, I really do yeah. think the gold standard is end-to-end -end tests. It's just, it depresses everyone how flaky they are. <laughs> and I really think that there's like this underexplored area where like if you're dealing with a system that's like made of state, like oh, yeah. your end-to-end -end checks are not going to catch like a million oh, different sure. things that could go wrong. Well, talk, so. talk about that. Like what are some things you guys have devised for dealing with state problems, for telling whether mm -hmm. or not there's a critical corruption bug or anything? Yeah, yeah, we've tried a lot of different things and I would say that like we, we still don't feel like we have a good solution for That's this. That's probably a good sign. I, I just think it's a really hard problem. It really is. But like when, for example, like when we like make major changes to the sync engine, we've done things like doing like side-by-side -side data comparisons mm -hmm. with like the old version of the code just so you mm -hmm. can at least see what changed. Yeah. For like small mailboxes, you can do like a manual inspection. We've tried all sorts of like data snapshotting type things, mm -hmm. but they're all really complicated systems in just in terms of and testing. expensive. Yeah, you know when we were rolling out our to our storage engine, we rolled out a change that did compression, mm -hmm. and so we kept both copies for a while. Well, that was expensive. Yeah, for you sure. You know we needed it to gain confidence, but it's definitely a pretty tough trade off. 
I really feel like people are at least not talking about this particular problem. People don't talk about like, the fact that the closer that you get to storing bits on disk, the more yeah. paranoid you have to be. Like, the game all changes. Like, a lot of people who are used to living their, their lives up in, like, happy fairyland where it's all APIs yeah, and, you know, everything's like, abstracted. You know, imagine like, that you have, bits like... bits get on disk. Like, that's where your, your mistakes are permanent. They're irreversible. They can often put companies out of business. And they're often not detectable until it's too late. Right, and if you have like a like a CRUD app where like the data is not that complicated, it's like an order of magnitude easier. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's discontinuous, like the yep. complexity and the difficulty and the magnitude of very small errors. So as you create these goals, as you create these way of measuring whether you're on the right path or not. How do the engineers feel about that? Do they chafe at, at suddenly having things to be measured yeah, by? Yeah, you were there or? from literally the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, Often when you're like, okay, engineering teams, you've been writing code. Now it's time to have like SLAs. Like, did they mm-hmm. chafe or did they, did they embrace it? Yeah, so I would say like in the early days, it was not a problem to like establish an on-call rotation and some like basic metrics and stuff like that because like the alternative was literally like the people that were like using our platform like calling us. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that like most engineers like they want to like build something that is like useful to people yeah. and is reliable and like when they see that a thing is not like living up to that, they want to fix it. So I, in my experience there there can be friction or disagreements though when it feels like there's an arbitrary number that's being imposed upon you. Mm. Or when it feels like it correlates to someone else's pain, not to yours. And you're like, mm-hmm. why do I, this doesn't actually reflect the health of the system as I understand it. Why am I, you know, because they don't want to teach to the test. They want to build. Mm. To Spang's point, though, I do feel like that tends to creep in at a later stage. Yeah. When, it's, when it's all early stage and the engineers Usually are building engineers and testing and production. the numbers at that point, And it's, it's very right. personal and they take yeah. real pride mm-hmm. in their work. But as organizations scale, they lose that agency on autonomy mm-hmm. yeah. and they lose that direct connection between the product of their work and the customer happiness. Yeah. I think that's where I see metrics suddenly becoming a real bone of contention. Do you feel like this is yeah, a... I've never seen that at, mm. like at Nihilus. And well, Nihilus is still at the scale up where I would say everything's really personal. Yeah. If you're looking at you know BMC or CA or IBM and or if you're like I think what you're talking about is a stage where you've got salespeople who are going out and selling exactly. a number. Mm-hmm. Where, and the engineers are kind of going, you sold what? Wait, yeah. what does it even mean? Mm-hmm. I haven't signed up for this. Yeah, yeah. responsibility without yeah. input. Yeah, I think that like because it's a little bit difficult to like define what the end-to-end reliability of our system is, it's also hard to put in a contract. Yeah. So like yeah. we've very intentionally tried to like oh, minimize. Yeah. Contracts. Lawyers like, are wh- weasley what as are, fuck. Like, they can figure this out. <laughs> what are the contract numbers? Because yeah. Like, there's just so many details there sure. that, like, we don't want to be arguing about it at a legal level. How like, did you know it was time to start introducing these numbers, though? When people, you- people were building production things on our Oof. service that was in beta. <laughs> but, but I feel like there, there are mul- there's a, okay, it's tired to have a number. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, our numbers aren't good enough. You know, mm-hmm. what, what, are, what are the things that feed into your it- intuition that, okay, it's time for us to level up in, in the terms of our commitment to our users? I mean, it's a lot of just talking to customers. Yeah. They're very vocal with us about yeah. when they feel like... But there's a difference, I think, between somebody saying, your service is not reliable enough right mm-hmm. now, and we need a clearer guarantee. It doesn't have to be perfect, but mm-hmm. we need to know what we can you know, base it on. Like these, have, in my experience, they've, they've been two different experiences. Hmm, interesting. I haven't had that experience. Interesting, okay. I, I feel like because we've been like pretty minimalist in terms of like our like guaranteed... Yeah. 
SLAs. Oh, like smart. it's all based on like are the customers happy? Like yeah. that's the goal at the end of the day. Yeah. So if the customers aren't happy, then we like introspect and are like, so what what's are we your been your process for coming up with these goals? Is it mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, you get in a room with a couple of people and you come out? Are the engineers part of it? Yeah. I obviously the engineers are part of it. A big input into our process is literally our like head of customer support. Mm-hmm. Like Categorizing Dude. things, support teams and like chronically undervalued in this oh ecosystem. My God. Yes, I completely agree with that. Support um, and documentation, unsung heroes of our industry. Like the thing is that like our support teams ended up being like the experts on like what is good and bad yeah. about our product. Yeah. They sh- they can and show up to a meeting and they can embody, they can channel your entire user base and just be like, it's like the voice of God if you dare yes. to listen to it. Like <laughs> this is what you should do, it's and that's why people don't listen because it is terrifying. Yeah, and so essentially what we've ended up doing is trying to, like, systematize, like, the kind of knowledge that they're getting out of just, like, being on the ground with customers every day. And so, like, we use this tool called Product Board to kind of identify, like, what are the different features or improvements or just, like, projects or reliability things that that need to get worked on and associate customer feedback with Mm -hmm. that. And then we actually have, like, a scoring system to help us prioritize, which... I think that it's like really easy to get into this like recency bias mode oh, where yeah. it's yeah. like yeah. we're gonna prioritize the thing that this customer was really just unhappy about, about like yeah. last week. Yeah. Whereas like maybe you've heard like eight times about a different thing over the past yeah. three or six recency months. Bias and is huge. you you just like don't do that because it wasn't didn't happen right before your planning down, process. I, feel like I need something like this. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that our process is perfect, but it at least feels somewhat data driven. Process. Yeah. So talk us through incident response. Customer calls, customer is not happy. What happens? Yeah, we have a few different things. So like one is like we try to proactively realize when there are problems going on with the system through, you know, end-to-end alerting and alerting on some important symptoms. In that case, it's super standard. Like our uncle engineer is in charge of the incident. They pull in whatever help they need and we try to get it fixed. Mm-hmm. But where it gets like more complicated and nuanced is like customer reports like I'm seeing such and such behavior that is like not what's supposed to be right. happening, and then we have to figure out what's going on. So our systems generate a, like a crap ton of data about what they're doing because it's a really stateful system, and we need to like have the breadcrumbs to be able yeah. to like diagnose those things when people report. Do you know them to how us. many events get generated roughly on the back end for every API request that comes in your front door? So again, it's not the API requests that matter. It's well. I mean, they matter, but it's a small piece. Sure. A simple piece. Essentially, like all of our mailboxes that we're constantly syncing are, are generating, like, if they're active, they're going to be generating, like, an event every time they sync new yeah. data. Mm-hmm. So, like, imagine how many emails you get every day. Right. Or, like, if you, like, mark stuff as on red or add a label or like, move it to somewhere else. Right. Like, all of that is generating, like, changes on our end. And, like, not just that, but like things that the email provider is doing um, or things that we have to respond to. So I'm not sure what the right order of magnitude is, but it really depends on the, on the email account. I remember at Facebook, somebody calculated, this took a long time, they calculated that every web request that somebody made to Facebook.com generated between 200 and 500 events on the mm-hmm. back end. Just debugging as it made its way through the stack and all the dozens mm-hmm. of services and databases and everything. Yeah, it really blows my mind how you have to like spend... Like the overhead. Well, this on, is why you have to sample. This is why you just have like, to sample. It's like not even for a question. sure. 
But it's like it's not a science; it's an art. It's like absolutely an art. Like how much money do we want to spend yeah. on debugging information? Yeah. How does that affect the speed because at which we're engineers able to, would love to like, debug spend two hundred to five hundred times as much on observability as they do on production, and obviously that's not reasonable. Right. You know, so it's always yep. negotiation. It's always an art. I feel like the massaging of sample rates and the massaging of these um. These are like the replacements in, the, in modern day observability for what was massaging pager mm-hmm. r- right, rules. Right, right, You know, it was yeah. just like, it was a job that was never finished, went on forever. You were always trying to find that perfect balance and it was constantly changing. And it woke you up in the middle of the night. And we're just trying to like move it up the stack a little bit so that you're not getting woken up, but you're still getting those, you know. And so mm-hmm. is the art in setting tiers of importance? What do you do when like there are multiple things broken? You can't care you? about everything equally. Do right. you have explicit... Yeah, I think that, like, some of the weirdest things for us to handle are, like, when they have, like, complicated steps to reproduce. It's like, well, when I, like, do thing, like, X, Y, and Z in this order on, like, a mailbox, like, this thing gets out of sync. And, like, we have had to keep around some semblance of, like, in-order, like, Mm. events for, like, our sync service because, Mm. like... For sync, it seems to be really important to have things in order and to not drop like important events. So write a head log, basically. Yeah. So like, what we end up doing is like try to be really vigilant about like what events are not providing signal and try to just like put them on on debug and not log them in production. I mean, if multiple things are like broken at the same time, like we try to like prioritize things according to customer impact, Mm -hmm. but obviously that's not like like a science either. At Parse, I remember we would prioritize. So the API was P1. Yeah, so it's like Always. if we're not serving API requests, <laughs> we better fucking fix that really soon. <laughs> Writes are more important than reads because at yep. least, you know, the reads can catch up later. Yep. But it was always the APIs first, then like push notifications and mm-hmm. writes before reads. And then like the website was like somewhere way down on like P10 yeah, or something. Yeah. Hey, we don't even like manage our own website. We, love oh, market. we let Mark Living the it. dream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a fan of all of these like tools and services oh, yeah. that mean that our engineering no apps. <laughs> that mean our engineering team doesn't have to manage that thing. How have you improved over time, and what else would you like to achieve? Gosh, like I mean, it's hard to even compare. Like our reliability in like year one. Oh was my god, I've known not, you. I didn't know you then, but I think I've known you since definitely year two not or production so. ready. And uh, it's it's phenomenal, like how far you guys have come. Mm-hmm. Oh god, I, I mean the I scale is like met Spang way... at seed stage and dragged it into my former yeah. employers, and yeah, dude, my when pitching I'm... was so bad then. <laughs> God, you should have seen the dudes. Yeah. No, you and Edith are I my, I, my being big like misses. Really, um, you're very earnest. Really <laughs> feeling really awkward and like it's it's it endearing. Theater. Rachel, you're it's super endearing. intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what was the actual question? <laughs> you know, like, oh, how will we improve? How do you um, improve? What do you have left to do? I'm really proud of just like the fact that like no one else has done this before. Yeah. Like literally we've That's been around huge. for five years and for like for like three of those years I was like, Am I a bad engineer or is this just really, really hard? Because yeah. it's like it's hard. We're just like constantly like fixing things and making Email's it better. Hard. And like I feel like like engineers are naturally often like a little bit perfectionist yeah. and it's like like I'm not satisfied with my thing until it's like working all of the time, and like the nature of like software engineering just means that that never happens. Yeah, I think that was the valid pushback 
on Nihilus at Seed Stage was like, this is huge. Can it actually be done? Mm, mm-hmm. uh, wow. And the and the it takes this much money to store all this email right. forever. Yeah, so we and had to like figure out how to like sell it in like in a way that would pay for those costs. Yeah, and that that's really why we ended up focusing on the business market because like. Email is cool, everyone uses it, but it's so much more valuable for businesses. Yeah. Well, this is what I keep telling people about going after the enterprise market. You go to the enterprise because that's where the money is. Yeah. That's why you rob banks. I'm, I'm Not that enterprise side. software is bank robbery. Not that Very startup awful. founders are, are robbing anyone whatsoever. I mean, consumer <laughs> is like fun, but like... No, it's not. People are dipshits. Consumer gets <laughs> all flaky. of the oxygen because the yeah. big exits have been consumer. Yeah, but you look at enterprise exits, there's more of them, and they're really consistently... If you're a data company, yeah. if you're a da- this is, we're going back to the difference between APIs and data, right? The a level of abstraction. Mm. Like, if you're a data company, there are just things that are attached yeah. to that, and you need to be talking to enterprises. Like, it moves too slowly to keep up with fads like consumers. I guess, like, I, I'm really a practical person, and I think it's, like, great to just be like a really good plumber. To be boring. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. this is why like, I was always drawn to infra. It's yeah. like hugely, hugely leveraged, like indoor plumbing. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like the basis of civilization, yep. but nobody pays any attention to it's it. It's been so, so weird for yeah. me. It's just this last year, like learning how to do product stuff, quote unquote, because mm-hmm. I show up and I'm like, they don't know. In infrastructure, I've always showed up and I knew what my priorities were. Right. It was all, it was do or die. You get this done or nobody gets to do anything anymore because your databases are not there, you know? Mm-hmm. And on the product side, they're just like, we don't know. We have to like sniff over after, after some intuitions or see what people are feeling like this week to like, you just have a hard time with human factors because you are at heart a murder bot. I mean, I love that about you, but. <laughs> Good times, Spang. Yeah. So yeah, lessons I, learned. <laughs> right, right. Lessons learned. I I was just thinking about how one of the hard problems in enterprise is just being able to explain well what the fuck you actually do. Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like it, and took, it's, it took it's us like not because the buyers are dumb. It's because the buyers have enormous yeah. breadth and they're yeah. doing all the things all the time. And you just have to find the story that matches their pain. Right. So it's also like it's tricky in like recruiting because you have to be able to explain like, like what the value of the company is in a way that like people can like say that at parties. Yes. Without like, leaning yeah, on all of the, well, we're doing there. microservices and Golang and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and and yeah. this is the thing. This I think is what distinguishes the really great startups from the ones that don't quite make it is the ability to tell a story. I guess like I've had practices with this before because the previous company I worked for was doing like kernel engineering stuff, and like then nobody understood what the fuck I was working on. So like I feel like working on email, it's like it's it's a lot easier. It's probably the fundamental part of all three of our jobs is like it's infrastructure, but you need to care about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that like scale and infrastructure and just like, you know, making the bits flow in in a like useful way is is a really interesting problem from like an engineering point of view. Dude, I go on road trips to look at interesting bridges. You've got me. (laughs) I agree. But if there's one thing that I over the course of the last we're almost three years with Honeycomb, Mm -hmm. looking back I'm like, all of the mistakes that I knew I was going to make and tried not to make I nevertheless made anyway, with my eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. One of them being, you know, we, we spent the first year writing a storage engine. Now, I knew, I'm like, people like me always underinvest in the product, and they don't hire soon enough, and they don't blah, 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 blah. I did not do all those things, and I, and I thought that I was compensating, right? I thought I was leaning mm-hmm. hard in the other direction, but I was leaning, like, half as hard as I should have. So lessons to spang of, like if you could just like go back and whisper in the ear of yourself, let's say four years ago, mm-hmm. what would you tell yourself? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Like, I honestly feel like the story of this company has been like a bunch of really smart people who had like no experience. Like, I don't know why anyone funds first time founders trying honestly. to like figure things out from scratch. And it kind of worked, but I also kind of wish that we had like known some like more experienced people and like had some more best practices from the beginning. But I also kind of feel like uh, when it comes to experience, like, you don't know that if you had, like, taken the time or had the experience to, like, do things right the first time that you ever would have made it to, like, actually take someone point. else's advice and best practices and just adopt them But it's them like if we, if we had spent, them, like, twice as long launching the product, maybe yeah. it never would have No, come. I'm a big fan of falling off a cliff and seeing how it works. So it's like, well, yes, the first version was shitty. So but let's like, constrain this to, like, best practices around, like, observability and, like, mm-hmm. um, metrics and stuff. Like, how do you think, you know... If you were doing another startup two years from now, what lessons would you take away from this one? I definitely underestimated the like importance of like trying to figure out how to get consistency right from the beginning. Ooh. And I feel like, you know, once you like build a system and like it has all the bugs in it, it's like infinitely harder to like go back yeah. and like, you like remove the them too. again because <laughs> Like, there's complicated ways that, like, they've gotten in there. And then, like, you know, the person who wrote that code might not even be there anymore. Um, And, like, debugging is just harder than writing code. So um, we definitely kind of... Debugging is harder than writing code. Oh, God, yeah. That should be, like, our maximum. We kind of, like, shot from the hip on that in the early days. And I'm seeing, kind of looking back over time, how hard it's been to just, like, remove those bugs. But from my um, perspective, I mean, the reason I invest in first-time founders is precisely because you don't know what you don't know. And mm-hmm. sometimes you make a mistake that turns out to be something somebody thought was impossible, and you do it, like mm-hmm. Nihilus. I really think that there's, like, this weird thing with startups where, like, you need to be, like, persistent and also, like... Delusional. Just delusional enough to, like, not give up yeah. until you actually, like... It's actually impossible. ...get it to, like, a good enough it, point. It's basically impossible, but you don't quite know that, so you keep going. But, and then, because, but I've also, like, struggled so hard over the yeah. years with just, like, is this completely pointless and, yeah. like, impossible? But here you are. Here yeah, you are. it seems to be possible. So I, I have to throw this in there at the end, um, just because Nihilus was our first paying customer at Honeycomb. Mm-hmm which is a terrible thing to inflict on anyone. I'm so glad we're still friends. <laughs> uh, what's it like working with services that are immature and bleeding edge? When is it worth it? When is it not? And like, what advice would you give someone else about when to take the plunge and how to evaluate that risk versus reward? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to know like the context here because otherwise you can't figure out what the lessons are. I honestly think we had like a really great experience working with Honeycomb in the early days, partially because like your engineering team is fucking awesome. And so yes. like even in the early days, like the technology worked and it was pretty stable. And I was constantly like just excited and amazed by the fact that like, you know, you guys just had so much experience like building reliable, scalable services. So we had just come from the dumpster fire that was parsed. So, so it's like <laughs> we never had to worry about like is this thing gonna scale or like is so green is this thing gonna be like gonna actually work because we knew you guys and we, we trusted that. We were working on the same block. I think so you that could like walk around the block and, and throw things at us. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it was like a three minute walk or something. And you're also like that. the dream customer. I mean, you yeah. you lived the problem statement yeah. every day. Yeah, so like one was well, like, that's why we wanted you so badly. We had like platforms. We had like a really big pain point, and like when you have a really big pain point, it's like the 
factors that you're considering are weighed differently mm-hmm. because, like, if it works out, your pain will go away. So I think that, like, if you don't have a big pain point, you probably shouldn't take a bet on some, like, tiny little startup. Yeah. But, like, there were definitely, like, things that were difficult. Like there What was were, that pain point? There were, like, no documentation and no best yeah. practices. True. And, like, we would ask questions and be like, well, we're kind of <laughs> just making this up as we that's go along great, here. That's a great question. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, like, we could walk around the block yeah. and, like, we had, like, an engineer from your team come and, like, literally, like, plug in the integration for us. Yeah. That's true. And Early startups will be so grateful. They will bend over backwards to help. And so, like, we knew that there was this trust from just, like, getting that hands-on support and knowing that, like... What was that key problem that was Your so team's painful? brains were, like, working on our problems and trying to solve our pain. all of our brains on a silver platter. Were <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the pain point was just, like, because we're, like, a multi-tenant platform and... Like we have all of these different customers that are using us in different ways. We really need to be able to like drill in and see things from their point of view. Yeah. And there's no other tool that like gives us that in the same way that Honeycomb does. So Yeah, it's technical empathy. Yeah. So like like I had to really like become an evangelist for Honeycomb to my team because there wasn't the brand for that. Like it was hard to explain. Yeah. So like, oh, yeah. I had we to go, did not have it figured out how to explain it. All. I had to go like teach the you were team really helpful like with that, how <laughs> how useful that was. But I think the really key points is that like we have this huge pain point that this product solved and we had like you that had personal ties and that investment. Personal ties and like partnership, trust relationship. And I think that like you can like develop that with someone that you don't know personally, but it's gonna take FaceTime and you gotta treat it like like a relationship and not like something that you're going to get kind of with like packaged with a bow tie on it. I feel like a good rule of thumb for me, if I'm asking someone to adopt something that is brand new, I have to be able to say that I think it's 10x better than what they have. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, if I can say that, then I can say it's worth the pain. Trust me. You yeah, know? for sure. And if not, it's probably not. Like I never would have gone after somebody for first customer who didn't have the pain of a platform where I knew that we could be that, have that much of an impact because I, I didn't mm-hmm. want you to have a bad experience. Yeah, and it, at a sense, like, we we didn't know what we didn't know and we're like, you guys build Parse and know things that we don't about building platforms. And so there was that also kind of line of trust of, like, hey, we think we need this tool and, like, these people that have used it or use something like this on a similar problems. type of problem. We're eternally grateful. <laughs> and it's been so mm-hmm. much fun watching Nihilus grow up over the past couple so years. So much fun. I'm really excited yeah, to see totally. you Yeah, totally. I'm next. sad that you guys Oh, and congratulations are belatedly on your Series B. I know we're three blocks down from you now. <laughs> uh, it takes it's a, like a long three blocks. Come on, it takes like, I guess you guys moved again. <laughs> yeah, we did. I'm not we're sure I've seen now. the new office again yet. You've been by for happy hour once. I no, not the new one. I've only been to the one well, we we should resolve this. The one next to the bar. Party time. Thanks so much, Spang. It's always great to see you. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-Cast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day. 